Mustafa and Ken here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic One podcast. Alert Medic One response. You want to introduce yourself, Chief? Sure. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good evening. I actually never know what time people listen to these. So yep, yeah. I mean, we all listen to them at different times. Um, yeah, my name is Joe Savak. I am a battalion chief in Anne Arundel County, Maryland. I've worked for Anne Arundel County for twenty, almost 22 years now. Uh, I've been in fire and EMS for 25 years when I was a young buck at 16 years of age in Jarrettsville, Maryland. Had nothing else to do besides go to school and go to the fire department. So it seemed like a cool thing to do. Um, proceeded to do volunteering through high school, moved up and uh, went to college. Thought I wanted to be a landscape architect. I spent a lot of money to learn how to print really nicely, which comes in handy. I mean, you got to write policies and mm-hmm. draw diagrams and everything else. Um, but it wasn't where my heart was, and so I came back to be a paramedic in 1999. Uh, went to got my paramedic. 2001 was hired on by Anne Arundel and haven't looked back. Uh, I've worked for Anne Arundel. I've worked for Queen Anne's County uh, part-time, Queen Anne's DES. I taught for the University of Maryland. I currently teach for Anne Arundel Community College. Uh, have done some lecturing around the country. Uh, I was on the Maryland Task Force 2, our USAR team that we tried to do more of a, a local focus um, until funding went away. And I uh, was the Maryland specialist uh, leader, essentially, for that group. And then uh, now in my current role, kind of kind of redefining myself and figuring out, like, Love, love the job, love the passion, and taking care of folks and making sure to develop the next group of fire and EMS personnel behind us. And then you're going to run for office in 10 years. I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm into the government thing. Like yeah. I, I like the behind-the-scenes aspect of it, but mm-hmm. not in the in front of the camera. I have a face for radio. so I think it's cool how many of us have the same sort of origin story where we started, at least in this area geographically, started at 16 in the volunteer service and the amount of experience that you get for free from that i think is really Mm -hmm. invaluable and not just the experience but the training too you know so many people by the time they're 21 and ready to enter a career service they've got at least emt if not paramedic they've got firefighter one firefighter two some fire officer classes hazmat classes uh, emergency vehicle operations classes, and they've got, you know, four to five years of real world experience that I think, you know, as a, a matter of job potential or, um, again, I'm having trouble articulating what I'm trying to say here, but just as a matter of resume building, I think is a great thing, you know? So I think it's also a blessing for where we live, too, because, you know, if you go and look at uh, West Coast mentality or West Coast practices, um, and even down in the southern, um, south, southeast, if you would, a lot of them is all college-based. So they have to go to a, a trade school. They have to pay for that certification. And like you said, Ken, I mean, here in Maryland, we can go sign up for classes tomorrow and, and be enrolled in a class essentially for free mm-hmm. um, by the end of the week. And so it, it is, it's, it's a lot of potential, but it also puts a lot of the onus on you, the, the individual, to be responsible, to know that that is your track. Like, I'm going to come in, I'm going to do these classes for these reasons to meet this criteria in an effort to serve my community, to get hired, to move on and do something else, mm-hmm. um, or just because it's cool and I want to yeah. stay out of trouble and, you know. Yeah. 
No, I mean it's it's so crazy. I I mean I don't know if you guys know this already. So I so we're recording in the RBS Monster Fire Department today. Uh, I joined here January of 2014 after having a really crap GPA at UMBC and not knowing what I wanted to do. And I wanted I was a biology major. I was working part time at CVS as a pharmacy technician, hating my life. And uh, December of 2013, I had to make a decision and do something. Uh, and I was like, well, I didn't have to, but I just decided I needed to because I was like, well, I'm definitely not going to medical school. Uh, so I decided to join here and, uh, I mean, the rest is history. It, it, it's really, really interesting that I could get, uh, everything for free. All I had to do was show up and, uh, put my time in. And I mean, we have length of service award points programs in Maryland. I'm sure other places have similar sure. things. Um, but you have to get 50, which I mean, depending on where you are, it's pretty easy to get. Um, and, uh, all they ask is for some of your time. Yep. So, uh, today's topic is going to be change management, right? Or, yeah, I think I think change management and really in in leadership, and not necessarily leadership, is in the leaders of the organization. You know, sure. as we were talking right before we started, I think in terms of even just your own personal leadership sometimes, and what that means, and ironically enough, to tie into you know the the ability to go out and take classes on your own. That shows your initiative, and that shows your leadership of thinking like, okay, I'm I'm here now. You know, when I when I joined Jarrettsville at 16. I wanted to be the the salty firefighter who was just riding a fire truck. Like we go to fires all the time, and at the time, I think Jared still had like a eh, fire a year. Um, so of course, you looked at other organizations around us and across the country and seeing what was going on. Uh, but then the realization that you know the the majority of emergency services are for medical calls, are for EMS related uh, incidents. And so, okay, what what is going to help drive me, or what is going to help put me in that position to be? Um, the best or at least be in the, in the top tier of that position. So, you know, when you look at self-leadership, it's the ability to look at the big picture, and there's all kinds of articles out there about, you know, the view from the balcony or the view from the 30,000-foot view, right? You know, taking the big picture in and kind of assessing the pulse in the environment, no pun intended, um, and knowing that, like, okay, in order to, to be successful in this in this job, whether you are career or volunteer, you're going to have to put a little bit of effort into into driving your track to where we to where you want to go and where you want to be. So that brings up, I think that's a great place to start. <clears throat> Excuse me, that brings up a, a a great place to start. So when you, th- I want to do a roundtable here. Um, when you think about leaders in your EMS organization, and I'm, I'm not referring to specific people. But who do you think has the most important leadership position in your agency? I'll give you my answer later, but we can start with the chief here. We'll start with Moose No, no, here. chief first, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Thanks. Well, Thanks, appreciate it. I got to think about my answer. Right, and, and, I, and I think that's the case. Um, I know that for me personally, over the past 20-some years, um, that's been an ebb and a flow of, of who is – Who's driving the ship? And this is the truth with any organization. Who's really driving the ship at that point in time? What are their goals and priorities? What are the goals and priorities of the citizens? Um, and so as I, as I dance around this question just a little bit, um, thinking about, okay, yes, really for the longest time, it was one of our uh, chief administrators, um, Chief Roger Simons, back when I was hired. And then throughout the years, as, again, the administrations changed it, it kind of went with a, a swing of the pendulum one way the focus is over here the focus is over there and we've started to really find a good balance and even as 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 current as today to be honest with you when i was teaching earlier listening to some of the current paramedics and some of the seasoned paramedics say we are in a really good spot because we have a great balance of and great understanding of 
what our job entails. And that's not just being a firefighter or being a paramedic, but the whole the whole encompassing area of it. So, you know, when we look at who is who's supporting us the most, it is really the administration, but ultimately driven by the citizens. And so again, without specifically saying this one person, I don't I don't think there is. I don't think okay. there is one person. So I have a little bit of a different take um, in terms of, so your question was, who's the most important leadership position? Correct. I'd say the lowest guy on the totem pole. Okay. And the reason I say that, and it's sort of a chicken or the egg scenario, right? Um, Because culture is very much driven by the top and the middle, right? But the most poisonous person to the new recruit, in my opinion, is the guy next to him. Mm -hmm. And if that person is not, displaying the characteristics and is not showing the intent of the of leadership, then that recruit might be, what was that? Oh, oh you hear something? Probably ghost. This place might is solid. Be. Yeah. Probably a chief <laughs> that's getting mad at me right now. Probably. Oh, ghost of a chief somewhere. Um, the, oh, so I know we got to talk about some ghost stuff later. It's okay. cool. Um, but no, so um, where was I? So, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the the bottom guy on the totem pole, that's going to be the one training the probie, probably, right? Or, like, may, uh, and usually, I mean, I know, I know it could be, like, senior folks, too, but I, I don't mean necessarily by seniority. I mean by rank. So, like, the guys that, you know, your, your firefighters, your paramedics, your EMTs, um, and, and, it, and it's the same towards, you know, your frontline nurses, anywhere. I think those folks are the ones that are the operators of the place's culture, right? And, um and I, I know someone could say, well, the, that culture is perpetuated by leadership. I wouldn't say that's necessarily always the case because the people at the bottom are always leading up, right? Or the fo- that's what you want them to be doing. Um, so I'd say in some weird philosophical way that uh, it's, it's the guy, you know, the bottom folks on the, on the totem pole. So I'm going to say that I strongly agree with you, and you almost completely stole my answer because my, my answer was going to be the preceptor. Because to me, when you have the new EMT or paramedic coming in and you have this open mind and this willingness to learn and this blank slate of an attitude, they're going to come in and they're going to start to emulate the person they're learning from. And that person is a leader. And no, they're not, you know, running a district or battalion or a division, but they're running a unit and they're influencing someone in a very personal and uh, important way. So if you think about, I mean, I'm sure you can think about EMTs and paramedics, you know, and of course I'm not asking for names, uh, that you could put a brand new EMT with and you would think, this is fantastic. They're going to learn everything they need to know. They're going to have a good attitude about running calls. And there's probably somebody else you can think of that you're thinking, ooh, I don't know if that person should have a student, whether it's because of clinical deficiency or just poor attitude or whatever the case is. These things are going to be imparted on the student by the <clears throat> by the preceptor. So if you look in, we'll, we'll use the fire department setting for an example. If you have a recruit come out of the academy who is ready to learn and has a good attitude, and you put them with a burned-out, salty preceptor, and they just tell them what a terrible time it is riding the gut bucket and how they need to rethink their life, and you shouldn't pick up calls, and you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do that, that student's going to think, okay, 
that's how this job works. That's what I need to know. But if you put them with somebody who's awesome and they're like, pick up every run, don't let anyone in your district, this job's so much fun, it's great, it's awesome, they're going to be gung-ho. So, and of course, you know, everybody's an individual and there's going to be people who don't pick up bad habits and there's going to be people who pick up bad habits in spite of good leadership. But I think more than anything, that preceptor student or preceptor rookie mentality is the most important leadership position because it doesn't matter if you've got a great company officer or EMS officer, battalion chief or deputy chief or assistant chief or chief of the department, if the people on the ground aren't teaching the right things to the new people. So what's that's my two So what is a great chief or a great battalion? Like, what does that mean? I mean, that means somebody who's looking out for their people and not doing things like, uh, you know, headhunting or being punitive for the sake of being punitive. And they're pushing things like training and education. They're pushing a, a just culture, a culture that's going to be supportive of people um, and understanding of people, um, but also one that follows the rules and holds people accountable for their own actions. So there's got to be that balance of both maintaining law and order while establishing that there is a human factor to this job, right? So you have to have both. So you can't just have one or the other. I think that's, to me, a, a good upper management leader. Um, yeah. And they need to, I mean, they need to understand things like labor laws and uh, dealing with unions and, um, you know, the rules and regulations or the procedures of the department, you know, that all has to be followed correctly uh, or else they're not going to have any credibility. So I think so, too, that, you know, much you had talked about the, the preceptor coming in and kind of showing the new guy the, the way and the new girl the way, the, um, the, the chief, right? We'll, we'll just use a generic term, the chief, whether it's battalion or division, whatever the case is, um, also needs to make sure that all of those, those parts that you just mentioned are communicated, right? Not just, not just showing them, but like truly communicating with, with their individuals to say, hey, here's who I am and here's who, you know, here's what my beliefs are. This is the beliefs of the organization as a whole. Um, and it's okay to question them. It's okay to ask about them. Sometimes they are set in stone because it's law or because it is um, policy or it's governed, whatever the case is. But every once in a while, you know, you have antiquated policies, you have antiquated procedures, and you kind of go, well, wait a minute. We stopped riding horses at some point in time. Mm -hmm. You know, why haven't we moved on and, and stopped doing X, Y, Z, whatever the case is? And so that same individual, that same chief, if you would, has to be open to communications both ways. It can't just be the message down, you know, the message from above. It has to be an equal and, and, and opportunistic com conversation to say, you know what, here's, here's where we're going, here's where we're heading. Is everybody on board? And more importantly, does everybody understand where we're going? And working together, um, again, going back to your preceptor end of things, you know, to have that energetic new individual recruit, whether it be on the engine or the medic, and just seeing them having the air taken right out of their sails, you know, the wind taken right out of their sails and going, oh, man, didn't know. But then going back to that personal factor as well, the personnel factor, was the preceptor in a bad place at that point in time? You know, is paramedic Schmerkins, my fictitious family, by the way, um, who is normally like paramedic of the year 
having something going on in the background. And they're such a good paramedic that we kind of lost sight of the big picture and understanding where they are in their life. Were they ready for this? You know, we always lean on them to be the preceptor. And now all of a sudden they have that, that one hiccup. So being in that chief role to kind of look and say, I know who the players are. I know the communication role. I know how we can work through this. And I also know when to ask for help or to ask someone if they need help. I think you bring up a really great point with the whole communication thing, especially the the two-way communication and the explaining things. And the reason I say that is I actually, where I work, we had a discussion about this with an officer above me and an officer of lesser rank. And the issue of communication from other parts of the jurisdiction came up. And the conversation basically was that how much easier it is to follow an order and do things when just a simple why is given, you know? And I think that's a very important aspect of leadership, so. And so, um, you know, we uh, had sent like some notes for today and everything else and, and Sinek, um, Simon Sinek does a lot of finding your why, like understanding the why. And a lot of times when you start with, hey, the policy is this, of course, we all look in the room and see, okay, well, who created that policy? You know, Johnson, uh, thanks for, you know, whatever your actions were, we now have a policy to, to negate those actions. Um, and, but in some instances, it is. It's because times have changed. We have changed. The citizens now require more. And that's why I kind of leaned back on, you know, they they lead our direction and our charge, what their needs are, um, and, and really kind of go into that why. I think our our biggest hurdle, obviously, COVID aside, um, in recent years is more focusing on that community paramedicine aspect, more focusing on, you know, we don't need to just take people to the hospital. Yes, that is our regulatory uh, direction. That's where we're going. But not everyone needs a hospital. They need some sort of medical attention, mm-hmm. an urgent care, a specialty center, a, a physician visit. But the hospital isn't the answer. So how do you sell that? Why? And, you know, you go and you say, listen, you need to go and be the best medic. You need to be the best clinician you can by truly listening to your patients and listening to what their concerns are. Maybe the fourth time you go to pick up Grandma Schmerkins, she's actually injured. And it wasn't just a lift assist, put her back into bed. And if you're not paying attention to that, you know, you've you've missed what the citizens are asking of you. And the citizens are asking of you, yes, to come put out their house fires, to do chest compressions, to get cats out of trees. But they're also asking you to come fix their problem, however long range that may be. Mm-hmm. And I think currently right now in, in emergency services, that's hard for us because they give us lights and sirens to go really, really fast to solve that problem immediately. Our work here is done. We're flying off to somewhere else to go solve another problem mm-hmm. instead of let's sit down with you. Let's, let's talk about what's going on here. Let's, while we're doing the lift assist, check your smoke detectors, clear some paths, get you some additional assistance. Well, that's the whole thing about the teachable moment, right? So I mean, it really comes down to, to, to knowing when that's appropriate. In fact, I can think of uh, a number of examples, I, and I'm sure you, you both can, where you've seen both missed opportunities and seized opportunities and, and maybe even inappropriately seized opportunities where maybe it wasn't the best time to bring that up. But um, you know, for safety reasons or whatever, it probably had to be done, you know, like the, uh, you just had the termination or resuscitation and they're, 
heating the house with the gas stove and maybe not the best time to bring it up but at the same time the house might you know explode because it smells like gas so sure sure um, so but, so then the question becomes yeah so you had that call for service that day at that time right are do you feel and this is just a generic question here empowered to go back the next day to go back the next shift and address it you know, hey, we were out here last week, and again, I'm so sorry for the loss of your loved one, but we also happened to notice that you were heating your house with the stove. Um, is there any other assistance we can give you? Because I know you're in a, in a very difficult place right now. Um, and I think that morally and ethically, we'd probably find a bunch of people that would agree with that, but yet we'd still probably, probably find people that say, well, that's not our job. Mm-hmm. But it is, you know, mm-hmm. that, that's where we are now. And that, again, going back to that change end of things, you know, the why of our organization, yes, is emergency services doing the things that you see on TV, all the fun stuff, but by the same token, taking it to the next step and, and putting in an added value of, hey, we are here to solve your problems. We're here 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Might not be the exact same people, but as a, as a culture, as an organization, it is the exact same people. How do you deal with scope creep? Um, again, go back to the why. You know, <clears throat> we yeah. don't go to fires. You know, right? So when I, like I said, when I started in Jarrettsville, twenty um, some years ago, twenty five years ago, and we went to a fire a year, maybe maybe three fires a year. Why? Why do we exist? Mm-hmm. Why do we have three fire, four fire trucks, a rescue squad, an air light unit, a draft unit, when we also ran ten? medical calls a day or or five medical calls a day but only had two medics or two ambulances yeah um so you go back to the to saying you know well our scope is emergencies followed by conservation or property stabilization followed by protection of the environment those are our three overarching principles right nobody said what the scope had to be nobody said that we had to stick to emergencies when they happen and that's it um, so again, kind of looking at, and I think to tweak it a little bit, how do you go back more to, to proper utilization, right? So time utilization or hour unit utilization, making sure that we're not crushing our crews with 12 hours worth of check and smoke detectors, putting up baby gates, making sure railings are in, et cetera, and having that good balance. It does. Maybe it starts with, you know, in the moment teaching and then coming back and doing some more, Hey, listen, to our um, community outreach group or to our fire marshal's office, this community, this area, these um, these houses have been identified in an area where I think we need to put more focus in, then that division or group or, or area can, can help out, if you would. How do we motivate EMTs and paramedics who may not feel that community outreach is a central part of what they do to get involved in things like hands-only CPR training or public safety initiatives like car seat and baby gate and you know what whatever the case is you know all these different programs we have food maslow's hierarchy <laughs> of needs you feed them they show up um you know I, I like to do what's known as dinner and a drill and so we'll get some pizzas we'll get everybody in for a few hours and we'll, we'll normally with with food we physically you know are sitting down reviewing policy and talking much like we are here about kind of where we're going it's kind of hard to, to drag a hose line or start an IV with a piece of pizza in your hand, though it has been done. Um, and so, no, I, I think you look at the big picture mentality and you say, um, you know, for instance, Arizona, 
Phoenix, I think it was, um, was looking at at their um, you know their organization and essentially saying they they wanted to change or institute a motto that said from heroes to guardians, and instead of us showing up when you need us, we don't want to have to show up. So we want to be incredibly proactive. We want to get out and do community CPR and come out and do pool safety awareness and come out and do smoke detector install. Smoke detector install is great, but when do you use your smoke detector? When, when it's too late. When yeah. it's, right, when there's a fire, right? Or you have, uh, what's the term now? Culinary ignorance. Um, and so looking at, sorry about that, uh, looking at, okay, I come out and I install the smoke detector, but I also take the time to go into the kitchen and look at how their kitchen's arranged, how their hallways are arranged. Do they know to close the door before they go to bed, et cetera? Um, and that all takes time. You know, that all takes time and incentive to, again, go back to that preceptor who's saying, hey, come with me. We're going to go out and we're going to talk to these people and, and give them our why because that's, that's who we are and that's where we are now. So was the food thing a joke? No, I, I seriously do feed my crews. Okay. Yeah. I want to know why we don't feed ourselves and our guests now when we do this. I'd be more motivated right now. I'd, I had to find my own food. We'll have to find that budget line. I'd like to know if we have a budget. Um, no, no, I, I, I like that. I like the larger view. I was going to push back on the food thing a little bit because um, we've all seen the memes when they say management thinks we want a pizza party when we actually want some more money. And I think there's some truth to that. Um, I think that uh, I think if we're going to ask our paramedics and EMTs to do more, and I really don't think it's more. I think it's just stuff they do already that they don't realize they're doing. Um, but I think if we're going to, I think if we're if we want to bring them into the fold more, maybe is what I'm trying to say. I think we need to we need to empower them and cultivate them and tell the, and show them exactly what they do and show it just how important they are. And part of that is appropriate compensation. Um, and I'm not just saying like financial compensation, right? I mean, talking about like mental health support, talking about, um, uh, having, you know, away from work day, uh, away from uh, work weeks where they, we, we pay them and it's not a vacation. It's a, you are away from work. You are disconnected. There's no overtime pages. You're not allowed to nothing. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I just, it's, I'm not saying you're one of those management people, what, but what I'm saying is I think that might be speaking to a little bit of like that out of touchness of other administrators that are saying, you know, I, and I know that's not what you were saying, but that's the first thought that came to my head. I think we need to, if we're going to empower these folks to do, uh, uh, to see themselves as guardians, right? Um, we got to be ready for that meme, like pushback and we need to, and to prevent that we really got to cultivate a culture of belonging not only belonging but um empowerment to see them more than just first responders but really like i mean I, I like the term like community guardians yeah and you know so right now um in case you you didn't know the hospitals are a little busy <laughs> um and they tend to hijack our, our crews um we have and and we're definitely kicking this horse a couple of times over empowered our crews to reach out and say, hey, listen, we're spent. We have been at the hospital. We've been running calls, whatever the case is. Can we come back out of service to grab something to eat? Or can we go get something to eat or whatever the case is? And absolutely is always my answer, comma, unless. You know, unless they come back and have, you know, some sort of like 
outlandish need, which is never the case. You know, they they appreciate the time to say, hey, can I come back out of service? Can I grab a bite to eat? Can I clean up? Whatever the case is, because they know the answer is always going to be absolutely because it's in their best protection. Like you said, even going back to their physical and mental health, you know, hey, I was able to come back. I was able to decompress just for a few minutes or, or grab a bite to eat. And yeah, not not the pity pizza party, but instead actually grab like a real meal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, again, kind of looking at, okay, what is it that they that they really need? I'd, I'd be a fool to sit here and say that they would turn away money mm-hmm. if you were to dangle it in front of them. But if you are exhausted in the sixteenth hour of your shift, what do you really want at that point in time? You you want to nap? You know, you want to just bed down for a little bit and kind of relax and, and take the edge off. If someone to come over and, and dangle a hundred dollar bill in front of your face. I, I think I might say, no, I'm, I'm good. I just, I just want to relax for a few mm-hmm. months. So. Well, let me ask you this for the, um, is that something that you do as an officer? Or is that a departmental policy and culture? What's that? The giving them the time to come, come back, back and everything? Yes. Uh, uh, sorry. It's a departmental policy. Okay. And it is at the discretion of uh, the chief officer of the battalion for, for our particular organization. Uh, but it is pretty much widely accepted. Okay. And, so there, we years ago, um, I was I interviewed a chief from Maricopa County, uh, Arizona, and then Missouri, I think, was the other guys. Um, and they were, and I, I stole it to this. I've mentioned it a couple times on the podcast, but I don't know whatever happened to it. So they were in. They were looking at novel ways of dealing with burnout. And they were actually looking at like the FAA's pilot model. So there's like a hour cap. So after so many hours, they have to have downtime. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, uh, you know, that and other novel opportunities that you've heard of. And I'm not saying that works. I I just use that as an example of maybe a call limit, right? Maybe a, and, and I know that's not realistic really yet, but I think that's where we really end up having opportunity anyway and things that people haven't thought about, uh, things that people, folks haven't thought about. Like what other ideas have you heard about? What, you know, what are your thoughts? Sure. And so, you know, you look at uh, crew rotation, first of all. So, all right, we work 24-hour shifts in our particular organization. Uh, does that mean that the, the two individuals on the, the medic unit um, only do, you know, a particular portion of the shift as the clinician, a particular portion of the shift as the driver? Do they handle each call individually? Um, you know, I take the first call, take the third call, take the fifth call, whatever the case is. Um, and a lot of times the the station will normally kind of script that out. Um, or do they just split it right down the middle and say, you know, listen, for the first 12 hours of the shift, um, A and B are on the medic unit and C and D are on the engine. And then for the next 12 hours of the shift, C and D are on the medic unit and A and B are on the mm-hmm. engine with the general understanding that they're, they're probably going to get that relief that they need later on in the shift. Um, that takes a lot of forethought to make sure that you have enough of the, the properly trained individuals, that you have your EMTs and your paramedics kind of equally spaced throughout the, the stations and throughout the department. Um, and then you have the outliers and the ones who just absolutely positively want nothing to do with the fire truck, uh, that want absolutely nothing to do with the medic unit. And so you have to be able to have that happy balance and, and not force them into it. Um, and you know, when, when you reach that and you hear the, I'm fine, no, I'm fine. I'm okay. And like you said, burnout is slowly creeping in on them and you see it in them physically, you see it in there emotionally and, and worse, you see it in them, in their patient care. That's when it's time to say, Hey, listen, enough is enough. 
you need to go bed down. We're going to put the unit out of service. And I think really empowering the station officer, empowering the, the battalion or the district chief, depending upon your organization, to say, yeah, that's fine. That's completely acceptable because we don't want to have the risk of an error, a medication error, a patient care error, or even something as simple as patient care attitude. You know, and um, I don't know all of the details and all of the backstory, but the individuals right now that are being um, uh Charged with with manslaughter, for instance, mm-hmm. you oh, know, I'm pretty sure it's homicide. Homicide is it? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Um, <clears throat> if you go and watch the video, even just the attitude alone of the individuals mm-hmm. is enough to say there is something else going on here. And we mm-hmm. get you know a 20 minute snippet of the interaction, really mainly from the from the police perspective. And the police are, and, and no disrespect to them, probably just coming on shift or it's the middle part of their shift where. You know, they're off in a few hours, and what's going to happen? They're going to give this patient to EMS. EMS is going to take care of them. They'll go back, do their report, and they're done with them. EMS has to continue to care for them and get them to the hospital and finish the report. And again, in some instances, stay with them for a while while waiting to offload or to, to um, transfer the patient over. So, you know, trying to, to avoid that and nip personality, personal issues, medication errors, patient care errors in the butt early is to say, I'm, I'm watching you not as a hawk with my, you know, finger waiting to point down on you, but instead I'm watching out for you. Mm-hmm. I really want you to be able to have that. And we go back to communication, right? I want you to have that open communication to call me, to text me as the chief, as the responsible individual of the organization to say, I, I need a timeout. I need, I need to relax. I need to, to bed down. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, to be clear, we're not talking about explaining away the like their horrific conduct, right? Obvious, nope. it's very nope. obvious that I mean, they. I mean, the guy slammed the patient onto his face in the cot, right? I mean that that was so egregious. And I, I mean, the whole time I'm watching it, and I, I'm just uh, listen. Uh, I I saw a ton of burnout in that video. I also saw, and but that does not explain, and that does not justify the way they horrifically treated the people they are like. And I don't know. I guess it was a private ambulance company. I don't know how EMS works where they are. I know it was, uh, I think it was a LifeStar, uh, LifeStar contract or something, because they said in the news article that LifeStar had no contract uh, comment. But regardless, I mean, we that is not only a failure a significant failure on those two individual clinicians but is it is a failure on the system because a multitude of issues led to that scenario and you're absolutely right we only see that 20 minute snippet but that 20 minute snippet is pretty damn horrific and um especially like what really got me was when the guy was like kneeling on the uh stretcher I'm, i'm like come on like and and again, I, I wasn't there. I'm not trying to Monday morning quarterback, but objectively, that, that that there's something very wrong and very disgusting with how those two, I, don't, I guess, their paramedics conduct them the conducted themselves. And I, I really do feel sad for, uh, especially the family now that has to relive that because now it's gone viral, mm-hmm. and they're seeing that video repeated over and over of like the last moments of their family member's life. I think there there is some silver lining in that. If you look at the response of the EMS community on social media, it's been uniformly to denounce how that poor man was treated and what happened to him. I mean, there's there's really none of the, 
oh, well, you know, it's not their fault or yeah, anything like that. Everyone is saying, no, what happened was wrong. And it's, I think, a good thing. Um, a, a good thing that we, uh, we, can, we can talk like that. And we can recognize as a profession what's important. Um, you know, it's, it's important that, that we, we stand by the family of this man and we uh, – um, sorry, I had a distraction. No, you're good. Um, <laughs> that we uh, – yeah, I'll so leave it, that. So going back to, you know, who's, who's our driving force, right, and, and looking at the citizens and their requests and their, and their, their asks, their emergencies, um, I know that when I teach, for instance – regardless of your interpretation of the incident at that point in time, this is that person's worst day, right? That, that victim, that citizen, that uh, patient is having the, the worst day of their life, regardless of, of what we think it is. You know, I always go to the, the stub toe or the tennis elbow or a hangnail. They ran out of options. They ran out of the ability to say, I know what to do in this instance. And again, I go back to emergency services as problem solvers. I need to call someone to come help me out and, and see what I can do. And so you always, always, always lead with the, the empathetic thought process of, I am here to help you, regardless of how serious your ailment or your, your call is, and looking at what your needs may be. And again, going back to kind of that added value portion of it to say, if you don't mind me asking, why did you call 911? You know, and oh, I, I, I didn't have anyone else to call, or I thought that was the answer, or I talked to my neighbor and they said to call 911. Okay, we, this might be a good time to do a little education. Um, this morning, I, I just saw a cartoon that said, reasons to call 911. When something is off that should be on, when something that is in that should be out, and it you know showed like a steel reed, uh, steel rod sticking in, someone's arm being locked off, um, when something bends that shouldn't, and when something is, um, well, what was the last one? Something that, something is not breathing that should, you know, like okay, in its most simplistic terms, yeah, those are like the emergencies that we deal with, but to go back and say, well. Well, where was their their standard of care, and where was uh, you know where was their training to properly treat this patient? That that's even just on the on the the sidebar at that point in time. Like they they are hopefully competent, certified individuals. They weren't even people in that instance. They were they were angry. They were burned out. They were you know showing their frustration towards the citizen who called. And, and really, by the looks of it, and, and again, don't know all the details by the police officers who called because they want to have, you know, this individual evaluated. Do we know, I'm sorry. I just, I don't want to lose track of it. I want to push back a little bit, not necessarily push back, but maybe ask you a question. So you described asking the patient in a polite way, why did you call today? Mm -hmm. Right. Essentially. But I think that requires this rational part of the brain that gets really taken away. Like I, I truly think, I remember when I was, at the peak of my burnout, that part of my brain doesn't exist, right? And that's why I, I think it's equally or even more so a system issue. Because once we bring our people, like, don't get me wrong, I'm not taking away personal accountability. But once your brain is at that point, right, it's like any other mental illness, you might not even realize you're there, right? And some people do, some people don't. 
I think that it's an equal failure of the system for allowing folks to get to that point. And it's just as egregious or more egregious than, uh, and I'm not talking about this particular situation. I'm just talking about in general, when we get, cause we see burned out people every day. I guarantee you both of you, you guys see it every day, right? I, d- I don't really see it every day, but, um, it's, um, I definitely respect where you're coming from that, you know, we, sh- that's how we should be operating. Yeah. Right. But I don't think that's necessarily realistic of the everyday day to day paramedic who's getting, who maybe is working that job, but then picks up a ton of overtime because he just has a new kid, had a new kid or for whatever financial burden, maybe he's got a ton of mental health issues and has addictions elsewhere that has have thrown him into debt, you know, so many other like compounding factors. I think, the 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 common denominator to, denominator between all these factors that I'm describing is the system within they wor- which they work in, and I I think there needs to be more onus put on the systems for having increased capacity or increased um, resources than maybe they have, and I, I'm I'm not I don't want to get into staffing issues quite yet, but. Um, and eventually it all, it always goes to a local executive leadership and, and, and budgeting, I think, to allow for the appropriate resources that fire EMS and rescue deserve. So I think the core issue here is that we don't treat burnout as a mental health issue that it is. We have done a really good job acknowledging and recognizing PTSD in ourselves. But what we have not done is recognize burnout as a real problem. Because when we have somebody who's burned out, what do we do? Take a couple weeks off. Go have a beer. Go read a book. Go take a vacation. Yeah. We don't say go to therapy. We don't say go see your primary care and see what they can do for you. Mm-hmm. We, we don't do these things. We, That's we, a damn good point. We don't say, hey, go to the IAFF Center of Excellence because you're feeling a little burned out. Mm-hmm. That's what needs to happen, and that's the next culture change that I think we need to have because it's a real conversation. And people who are burned out become a danger to themselves and to their patients. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not that they're going to go off and hurt themselves or hurt somebody else in most cases, but they're going to make bad decisions. They're going to make poor choices. And they're going to put themselves and other people in a bad situation. I couldn't agree with you more. It's so interesting you bring that up. So I, I, it's, I've kind of been running this own experiment, experiment in my head of like, as I, f- I get further and further away of being in the field full time, I find myself unraveling layers of issues that I had. Right? So for example, last night we were practicing infant IOs, right? That's something that when we talk about, that's a completely normal skill that we teach. But I walked in for whatever reason that evening yesterday, I walk in and I kind of took it in. I'm like, we are teaching paramedic students to take a sharp needle, right? And drive it into this kid's tibia. And sure, it's the appropriate treatment. But name one other place in society where that's even normal thinking, right? And that's and I don't care. That's a trauma. That's a, that's trauma in itself, right? That's mental health trauma right there. And uh, to us, we're just teaching, right? It's just a mannequin. We're teaching a skill. And it's in a critical skill, which you, when you need it, you might really need it. But um, no, I can't agree with you more, Ken. I mean, we we need to step away from the, not necessarily step away, but maybe push further through the general uh, advice that we give people and have like actual stepwise solutions to what like they need to do including like what you just said and maybe that comes from department departmental policy maybe that comes from best practices from national groups i don't know what the answer is but yeah 
No, I, I think it's a great point, and, and to have a and, and my gosh, I, I really, really, truly hate to policy things to death. But um, you know, when for instance someone's injured, they have to return with uh, fit for duty. You know, your your physician has said that you can physically do the job. And you're right, you know, I, I recognizing and identifying PTSD and, and recognizing and classifying burnout should be considered in the same light. You know, hey, listen, you didn't just go away for a week because you went away for a week. That was it. And the organization continued on. We want to make sure that you are part as part of the organization are okay and we're gonna follow up with you. And, you know, we had talked about before, like, it's, it's not just a matter of we're not going to call you for a week. No, actually, we're probably going to call you every day. Mm-hmm. And we're going to check in. And we're going to say, okay, listen, you've had two days. You kind of got to, to catch up on sleep and hopefully, which is uh, impossible, um, you, you've been able to decompress. Today, I want you to reach out to the following people or the following people are going to reach out to you, you know, to, to check in and make sure. Looking at, you know, where does where does that recognition occur and and that's the culture that needs to change that just saying i'm okay is is not the case you know you're you're not um i'll I'll go back to you know early childhood right you couldn't just tell your mom because why'd that happen because well because isn't an answer because it's just a, a momentary pause you need to say no i'm okay i've been able to digest this i've been able to absorb this to process this uh, here we are, January thirteenth. Ironically enough, twenty twenty two, twenty twenty three. Excuse me. Um, everyone is now an expert in commotio cordis, which is fantastic, <laughs> thanks to social media. Um, but more importantly, you know, some of the sidebar conversations of the individuals, right, wrong, or indifferent, who witnessed that and thought, "I don't know how they're going to be able to go on with their day. We need to stop this football game. This has been a tragedy." And you're one hundred percent right. That man died on the field. Thankfully, is alive today. But that, even in some cases, that particular EMS crew just went back to work, mm-hmm. you know, and it's what we do every day. Like you said, you know, this morning I woke up, I ran a pediatric arrest where I drilled some child's leg who I'd never met before and will probably never see again. I then came back and had to tell somebody that, that Grandma Schmirkins, their beloved matriarch of their family, had died overnight and there was nothing we could do for them. Um, and then watched someone's house burn to the ground, or at least they lost a lot of their belongings in a house. Um, and then I had lunch, uh, and then went and fueled the rig and washed the rig. Yeah, that might've made me feel a little bit better. And then I ran a car crash where, you know, a, a family was enjoying a, a trip to Disney and came home and now all their clothes are scattered amongst the highway and they have no way to continue their journey home or their journey to the happiest place on earth. Um, you know, wh- where does that checklist come? Mm-hmm. Like, at what point in time do you reach that? Right. And so I don't know that we necessarily put a number on it. But even maybe some sort of, of criteria that identifies calls. Because you could mm-hmm. run 10 cancellations in a shift. And just because the policy says after 10 calls, you have to go take a break. Like, okay, mm-hmm. out the door, you just turn around, come back. Out the door, come around, turn around, come back. Is there a almost like an EMD type criteria mm-hmm. that, you know, hey, listen, two cardiac arrests put you in the yellow category two cardiac arrests in a shift put you in a yellow category two trauma uh put you in a, in a yellow category three puts you into a red mm-hmm. and that's where we either reach out and we either touch base or we just physically say hey listen two hours 
take some time yourself personal we got we got a crew we can swap in we got a crew we can swap out or you're just off the rig like we're off the rig you'll have a supervisor come over chit chat with you or someone who is part of the team um you know within the organization and this is big picture thinking here no um, i like that a lot you you just came back to the faa thing for pilots right Right. You, you just did the firing. That's really good. That's why we do this podcast to get these ideas out. No, that's really. Did you just come up with it? Uh, kind of. Yeah, I mean, but that's really good. I mean, what are your thoughts? No, I do. I do like the idea of uh, something that's going to trigger some sort of intervention of a contact by a peer support team or a SISM team, and even if it's just them reaching out and saying, "Hey, you've had X number of." difficult calls. We just want to make sure you're all right. You know, I think that's a good thing. Um, I kind of I I couldn't help myself but laugh a little bit where he said you know three cardiac arrests puts you in the red zone because like that's a normal day work for me sure <laughs> you know and I'm thinking I'm living in the red zone but um, it's uh, it's it's it, it's really important and it's a really good idea and we don't do a good enough job taking care of our people you know it's not fair to our EMTs and paramedics that they do run. You know, three cardiac arrests in a row or a couple DOAs or a pediatric trauma or a pediatric arrest or, you know, and there there has to be, I think, some sort of cultural change around that as well, where the, the paramedic or the EMT feels empowered to speak out because it's not always going to be that big ticket call. Mm-hmm. It's going to be that seven-year-old who fell and, you know, broke his leg, but, oh, my God, he looks like my son. You know, it's going to be that car crash where somebody got a little bumped up, but they had the same last name and date of birth as my fiance. You know, it's going to be stuff like that, too. Um, And and we need to make sure our people feel okay uh, reaching out in those instances as well. But I think some sort of a a flagging or alerting system where you have, uh, you know, those high-profile calls definitely – is important. And I also think, you know, I wanted to bring up what both what both of you were talking about. It's amazing how desensitized we get to this stuff. Mm-hmm. Because I'll tell you, it, it never occurred to me before you said it, Moose, that it's not normal to be digging around in a baby's bone with a needle. Like, I've just, that's just become part of who I am. Like, it, it's never occurred to me that it's not normal to deal with dead kids and people getting their heads blown off. And, like, that's just – that's life for you too, so you it, know? So it is, and I, and I, I have to uh, – full disclosure here. I, I grew up in a funeral home. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and I watch everyone's face do the same thing. It's okay. Um, <laughs> from birth to about 8 or 9, 9 or 10 years old, um, we legit lived above the funeral home. So death has always literally been part of my life. Um, and that understanding of it, it doesn't make any – easier for me i think i think it's more of an understanding which in turn has allowed me to to make it easier for others um and the biggest one being and and to toot my horn for a second here many people have always said you know hey hey chief or or at the time you know when i was on uh, ems supervisor like how how did you go over and just talk to that family about what just happened here and it's kind of taking in some inherent knowledge and that's another one too is that like if there isn't a protocol for something the, the unfortunateness where providers don't know what to do, right? They vapor lock because they don't know how to just talk to somebody. And so to go over and, and talk to somebody and say, listen, I understand, you know, the circumstances here were, were unfavorable. Your loved one has died. We are going to use these terms. The same thing may have to be true when we refer and, and look at ourselves, you know, hey, listen, 
I know you think you're okay, and I give the air quotes there, but I'm seeing some things, we are seeing some things that indicate that you're not. Mm -hmm. And as a person, talking to you as a person, I want you to listen to me. And and don't, don't listen to respond. Just kind of listen. You know, let me talk because then I'm going to let you talk. And I think much like you said here about the podcast, that's when you get more, yeah, you're right. You know, it, it has been a lot. It has been someone who looked like my son. It was someone who had the last name with my fiance, and I'm just now processing it. Um, looking at uh, community paramedicine, for instance, and I think we took part of, you know, your organization's model where our, our policy states that you can call for the community paramedicine group after a crew has gone out to a residence so many times during such a period. But we actually add a line in that said, or, and or, excuse me, one significant event that you believe requires additional follow-up. Mm. And so, you know, kind of following that that process there, the FAA process, and saying, yeah, they've ran three arrests today. It's just what they do. You know, it, it's just the organization they're in. Um, now, we, we just ran, a, a you know, a bus fuel of hemophiliacs, and it's the first time we had an MCI in forever and a day. And while, you know, well, okay, it, it really – really wasn't a big deal you look around the corner and here is your brand new rookie firefighter who is just awestruck like i've i've never seen that much blood in my life i've never done something that isn't normal i've never put an io in i've never done this um you know i i personally have done two surgical crikes in my 25 years 22 years uh, you know with Anne arundel and looking at the the process that goes through there um it, it is. It, it's a daunting task to be like, okay, this is our last resort here. And to go through that process and now teach it and explain it to others is um, even more daunting because, you know, you kind of go, look, you, when you do a surgical crike, you have to have two things, and that's a scalpel and a commitment because you can't go back. Even with the I.O., you know, okay, if the I.O. doesn't work, we can try getting a vein or something else. So it's um it's an interesting process to to start to really think about and dive into and there and there's all kinds of groups and advocation out there for peer support teams and for PTSD awareness, but I think we're kind of all over the place, all over the map on it. Mm-hmm. Where do we start to drill it together? Yeah, yeah, and it's really been a very interesting journey for me as I like uh, and I and there's a part of me that's like not exactly happy that I'm this like uh, that I am it's kind of proved to me that I am disconnected from the field a little bit because I, now it's been over three years that I haven't worked full time as a paramedic. Right. But it's, but it's also really interesting to me that it's taking years to take away like the unravel stuff. Right. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty, it was eye awakening for me too last night too. And I wanted to talk about it at some point today. So I didn't know we'd record it, but whatever, but like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, um, uh, I really like this like stratification idea, like this like we're basically describing like a risk risk matrix with like set outputs, you know. So I don't know. I like that idea a lot. I think it it, it does require a commitment by departments or organizations to actually fully fund and implement things like CISM and peer support teams. It can't just be an on call person or a. Uh, a volunteer group or something like that. It has to be, okay, we have a SISM or peer support team, and these people 
there is somebody on duty at all times and their job is I don't care if their job is to sit there and click on runs on the CAD and just look for runs that look bad. And they see one and they say, okay, medic one, two, three, four, whatever, is going to this call for a three-year-old who's been assaulted. And I'm going to watch. And when they clear that call, they're going out of service and I'm giving them a phone call. You know? Yeah. No, I like it that a lot. Be, it's almost like these simple. new the NFL guys that uh, they see a weird hit. They're just looking for a weird hit. Yeah. And as yeah. soon as they see a weird hit, they stop play. And, or, or I mean, I don't know if they stop play, but like they, yeah, no, they do stop play and they go pull the player yeah, off. Protocol, yeah. um, concussion protocol. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I, I think that's a solid idea to yeah. like wrap into something like that. And um, uh, I had something else I was going to say, but I forgot what I was going to say. So back to well, you, Ken. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> you know, it, it just, it reminds me of a, a few years ago, I got a phone call from communications and they're like, hey, medic so-and-so. Uh, just got dispatched on their second or third DOA in a row. We just wanted to make you aware. And I was like, that's good looking out. You know, mm-hmm. like, I'll give them a call and make sure they're okay. Mm-hmm. And at, at the same time, there was a cynical part of me that was like, yeah, so what? It's a DOA. But then I'm like, no, that's not right. You know, mm-hmm. I should call them and make sure they're okay. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. So, uh, <laughs> like, your county actually has a really robust peer support program. We, we do, yeah. And so, um, much like you were saying, we we have our, our on-duty personnel. Not necessarily on-call, but physically on-duty um, so many personnel that are part of our peer support team and that are peer support leaders. And on each shift, we've identified a real leader who who should be doing that, who should be looking out. But, of course, they have to run their own calls, so they might miss one or not be aware. Um, but we we do. We have a pretty good team. Or I, I take back. We have a really good team um, who is looking at looking out for each other before the fact. You know, hey, let me give you a quick phone call and just kind of check in. Um, as well as after the fact, and I'll, and I'll say that one of my unfortunate interventions with our original attempt at this, this is 15 plus years ago, um, we used to refer to them as the hug team, and it was you know probably not the best, but they'd come out and like, oh, you know, hey, I heard you had a bad call, let me give you a hug, make you feel better. Um, we, had a, we had a pretty serious call, and they got us all back at the station and got us together and essentially said, Listen, you know, let's go ahead and talk through this. This isn't meant to to critique the incident. It's to talk about mental aware, mental health and everything. And we're going to follow up with you at a later date. And I'm still waiting for that phone call, you know, at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Now our peer support team is much more involved, much more hands-on to where, if need be, the individuals who are part of the team on the shift are allowed to put their unit out of service to go and assist another crew. Like you said, mm-hmm. Medic 1234, who's running that that three-year-old assault or that three-year-old priority um, cardiac arrest and and being able to go meet them at the hospital. So it's it's getting there. It and really, it really also, is. Also, I saw a presentation at the Maryland Emergency Management Institute's conference a few years ago about, uh, was it the Capitol Gazette shooting? And how you're, and I don't know if it's a combined peer support team or not, but uh, it was a it was a mental health professional and folks from the police side. And I, again, like I said, I don't know if they're separate, but they were almost the equivalent of like forward deployed. Uh, and that's what she talked about. Their model for being there, up, you know, clo- not just, f- r- r- you know, passively being at stations or I guess precincts or whatever it's called, but instead they were at the scene talking to folks there and debriefing folks. Um, I don't know if you had any comment on that. 
Yeah, no. So I mean, again, with our with our individuals who are um, in the shift work position, I mean, along with our um, day work folks who are part of the peer support team, you know, mm-hmm. in in high profile instances like that, absolutely, they would be. Hey, we're going to go ahead and, and put this asset in there, um, and that that again goes back to that really big picture thinking, right? Like mm-hmm. we're right here, right now, in the in the mix of it. But what happens a half hour from now? What happens mm-hmm. two hours from now? What happens six hours from now? Do we still have personnel? to continue running the shift or do we need to go ahead and say time out we're going to pull the trigger now to start backfilling these positions because we know we're going to pull them mm-hmm. pull them from duty so let me throw this question out to both of you while we're on this topic we do a really good job taking care of ourselves sort of uh as far as sism and peer support goes right but do we need to make more room for actual mental health professionals in these settings should we have actual therapists engaged in this should our SISM and peer support teams that have a therapist or a psychologist as their head in the same way that we have a medical director they have a mental health director absolutely i'm so happy you brought that up because that's what i was going to like ask next about you guys or from you guys yeah so uh, we did a really good episode with uh so fred rydell mm-hmm. um and ray gill uh, who's a i believe he's a captain now uh here and i think fred was a captain when he recorded i, I believe he got a promotion right yeah yeah so and we this concept we talked about was what we provide in the fire service with fire department service personnel is the equivalent of first aid right it truly is just first aid but the whole point of ems is you get them to definitive care uh, you know, w- any of our patients. So in the same token, absolutely, Ken, I agree with you. We need to get them to definitive care. Now, I don't know if definitive care means departmental, uh, like, you know, pins, full-time employees that are doing that thing because a lot of places may not be able to afford it. I think if they can, that's a solid idea. Um, I think budgetary, I think the consensus should be that they should do that unless they can't afford it. But absolutely, I think we should be at least con- like getting in contracts with different, uh, you know, f- in providers or clinicians that that's their thing because our people deserve it so we actually do have a um clinical psychologist who dr uh, wellsant who's part of our group in anne arundel um does does training with obviously the peer support team and then provides additional training to the department as well i'm sorry what group uh peer support oh, okay okay gotcha. sorry so then um even even this past week we talked about in one of our command staff meetings how Peer support is fantastic, but there is, and, and you're right, the need to have a psychologist or a, a physician available because there are psychological emergencies in this as well. You know, someone who is has made the statement of threatening suicide or committing or, or contemplating, et cetera, um, versus maybe just uh, you know, ah, oh, man, I'm really really burned out today. You know, okay, today today was just a long day. You know, those, those kind of comments and trying to be able to, to make sure that we understand the difference between those, between the psychological end of it versus the peer support end of it. And I think that's where that, that physician, that, that clinician for the department um, would really benefit as well. Because I really, I mean, we don't know what we don't know <laughs> uh, about that, right? I mean, uh, that's, so I think, did you mention Dr. Victor Wellsant? Yeah. Yeah. So we worked a lot together uh, during COVID because he was one of the co- a few clinicians that did, and I probably shouldn't talk about too much, but there was a huge state like mental health initiative that I worked with him very closely, really nice guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but yeah, we don't know what we don't know. Right. Um, and w- we know how to do the first aid, I think pretty well, our folks do, but 
there has to be this concept of we have to have the content experts that do this stuff every day who's their it's their job as a integral uh you know part of the team yes exactly you had mentioned you had mentioned before like we don't know what we don't know and that you know we we do first aid we talk about the mental health first aid end of it and everything um i almost you had talked about mission creep earlier when we talked Mm -hmm. about overall fire department mission that if we do you know where where do we stop so we have our peer support team who is is trained in mental first or mental health first aid and looking at our individual folks and then being able to refer them. But I'm sure we all know those individuals in our organization that think, I can help this person. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should be the referral or the referee to say, Absolutely. much like the NFL, hey, look, I've recognized this. We now need to send them to the professional cl- clinicians. Um, and so making sure that you know, even even for our own folks who have stepped up to be part of the peer support team or any kind of group such as that, that they know too, like, you are going to check in on folks and we are going to have someone check in with you because you can only take, no pun intended, so many of those hits before you yourself are in need of like a break, a timeout, a whatever term, you know, evolves from that after three red calls or three red situations like yeah you you're your time out on the team for a little bit to give you some time to decompress because you still have your initial job i want to ask you something you mentioned earlier that look growing up in a funeral home kind of put you in an interesting uh it gave you interesting perspective but i imagine that it it still doesn't stop uh you from gaining the same chinks in your armor every time you have to tell somebody so like what like how do you process that? Absolutely. And so, you know, you, you take it for you take it for what it's worth at that moment in time. And and by that I mean you look at the situation at hand, does it affect me? And for almost all of us here, I would say no, it doesn't affect me. Yes, every once in a while you run that call where you actually do know that person or that family or or some sort of connection to them. Um, and then yeah, you may have to hopefully going back to that that mental awareness remove yourself from the situation, or, you know what, I'm not just going to sit here and tell you that I understand. I truly can relate with you, and mm-hmm. we're going to have a moment to, to decompress. Um, currently in the hospital, or in, in some hospitals, after a cardiac arrest or after a patient passes, they actually do a moment of silence where like they, they appreciate and they thank the person for allowing them to do what they attempted to do and the, and and let them express their um, emotions, whether it be silently, internally, or, or externally, to say, it is unfortunate. We were not able to save this individual. Um, we tried our hardest, and, and we appreciate you for being here, and thank you, and, and hope that, you know, you're off wherever you believe you're going to and are enjoying the rest of your life, um, and, and thank you. You know, again, kind of like, okay, we did everything we could deep breath everyone's good you kind of do the visual check look around the room everyone's head is held high we feel good about this this operation or this procedure or this event and now we we feel like we can move on and i think that you know without having it mean somebody in a security office you know looking down at the camera going all right everyone lift their head up including the lead physician or the lead clinician everyone looks good okay that's correct that crew is ready for deployment you know, yeah. like, how far does it go? And you kind of have to, like, look at internal, okay, we've all checked in, we're good, we've, we've processed it. 
Um, me personally, I actually go back and talk to the crew about it. Like, hey, listen, so when I told Grandma Schmirkin's loved ones that she had died, it was an interesting conversation, and these are the reasons why. You know, they took it really well. They took it really bad. They had um, nothing but good things to say about us. Um, they had a whole bunch of bad things to say about us. Um, and and that's the hardest one is when regardless of the situation, you know, your, your loved one with a terminal illness has died and they, and they react negatively. You know, they weren't ready for it. They weren't prepared for it to just give them a moment and to just allow them to process it. And I go back to a, a statement I made earlier where I say, you know, we're so forward driven emergencies, 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 lights and sirens. Let's go. Hoorah. Out the door we go that it's hard. It's hard for us to just stop and accept that they're just going to, to cry for a few minutes they might want to cry with you you might want to cry with them it's okay it makes you know less of a person it actually makes you more of a person to say you know what this does suck this is a bad a bad moment in time for all of us so let's absorb it and let's just kind of be in the moment not hey let's pack up our stuff and get ready for the next call yeah i like that a lot it's yeah. interesting what you said about thanking them the that made me think my mom um so i remember the first time i did a cadaver lab and the day before my mom told me something that I like. I still remember to this day. She said, "When you first get in there, make sure you thank them for allowing you to perform these skills, and that'll like what you're doing there is going to allow you to help folks that are still with us." Yeah. So we actually we actually do that to this day when we yeah. do our cadaver labs. Um, we've had enough students recently in our programs. We've run like two and three cadavers at a time. Uh, we bring the students in, and, and Dr. Wendell, our medical director, goes over um, all the procedures that we're going to do, and the and the process of getting in there and putting on your gowns and everything else. And then at the at the table side, we do we take a second and we just say, you know, thank you, thank you for like you said, allowing us to do this because now we are going to be able to be prepared to go out and and help others because yeah. of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, it really does help uh, by taking the moment to kind of you know. Uh, I think it really does help process, mm-hmm. you know, so we're at an hour and 11 minutes. Yeah. Solid conversation. Cool. Yeah. I think we'll definitely have you back to do the other th- three or four bullet points you sent us. Whatever. I, I, <laughs> and this, you know, the, the crazy part is, and I know we're, we're trying to cut and I'm just going to talk. Um, no, no, you're good. You're good. I, the crazy part is that when you, when you think about change management or any kind of change, it's, there's no immediate answer because all you did there was, was respond to the problem. You didn't actually think about the problem. So I will leave you with this, and that is um, one of my last classes at National Fire Academy. We kind of talked about the phrase uh, PTA, which is pause, think, act, and that when someone talks to you or talks with you, that's the key. The next time you talk to somebody or you want to ask a question, tell them from the get-go. I don't want an answer now. I, I truly don't want an answer right now. But what do you think about this? Then lay the question out there. And if you need to, walk away from them or turn around or just say, nope, I said no answer right now because I want you to go back and think about it. Sometimes like it makes a difference. I like that a lot, yeah. You want to finish this out? All right, everybody, thank you for listening to Alert Medic 1. We've had a great conversation, and I hope that you will join us again next time. Have a great night. Oh, yeah, and don't forget to leave us a like, rating, and review. That's very important. I almost forgot. Have a good night, everybody, or day, or whenever you're listening to this, because I get yelled at when I say good night. Good night.
You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. Thank you.